Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I meet a nuclear physicist, and we talk about how quantum computers could soon be used to solve some of the fiendishly difficult mathematical problems in that field. Also, a Physics World colleague stops by to talk about interdisciplinary research. Quantum computers hold the promise of solving certain problems that are intractable for even the most powerful supercomputers. They could be particularly useful for simulating some nuclear processes that have proven very difficult to calculate using conventional methods. I'm joined down the line from the University of Surrey by the nuclear physicist Paul Stevenson, who's just received a grant from UK Research and Innovation to develop new algorithms for quantum computers. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Thanks for inviting me along. So, Paul, what are the benefits of doing nuclear physics calculations on quantum rather than classical computers? So the main benefit of using quantum computers is that you can make use of the the basic building blocks of these quantum computers, which are called qubits. Um, as direct simulators of protons and neutrons. So these are the the things that make up a nucleus. Uh, So qubits are usually, they don't have to be, but they're often made of um, spin-half fermions, which are a certain kind of basic quantum particle that has this um, intrinsic property called spin. And and if they're spin-half, that means they can exist in either one of two different states. So they're usually these two-level quantum systems. And typically, this is something like an electron or a particular atomic um, ion that's that's been trapped uh, uh, in the quantum computing device in a certain way that can be manipulated. But the key point is it has two kinds of levels which the the qubit can exist in. That's kind of like uh, a regular computer bit uh, where all the... All the computing done on a regular classical computer is made up of these bits, which can either be in the state zero or one. Uh, and then you make up all the complexity of what you do in a computer by, by having a huge number of these bits and manipulating them very fast. So a qubit also has the same property of having two different states, but there's a there's a, an amazing um, uh, thing in quantum mechanics that says that if it's a, a quantum particle with two states, it can actually be in a linear combination of the two states at the same time. So that is to say um, that it can have a certain probability of being in the, the, the lower state, which we could call zero, and in the upper state, which can be one. And you only find out which state it's in when you make a measurement. So you measure it and, it's, and, and, you turn out, and it turns out that it's in state zero or it's in state one. Um, but before you measure, you don't know what it is. So, um, and, and if it turns out that it is in one of these superposition states, what you can do is you can try to prepare your qubit the same way a thousand times and you measure it a thousand times and you'll find out there's some number of times it becomes, uh, it measures as zero and some number of times it measures as one. And that's how you kind of reconstruct um, which state it was in. So that's, so one aspect of quantum computers and qubits is that whereas a regular computer's bit can only either be zero or one, which is just, you know, there's just two numbers that can possibly represent two things that can represent. Um, a qubit can be anywhere between zero or one. So that's actually, you know, there's an infinite number of numbers between zero and one, uh, an infinite number of real numbers. So that's already one great um, benefit. It's kind of like an analog computer if, you, um, if you've if you ever come across those. 
But then the other, the other thing that's um, not like an analog computer is that when you have many qubits together, uh, you can they have a kind of a joint uh, wave function, which is the, the basic quantum um, state of a of a system. Uh, and this wave function be can become very complicated very quickly as you have multiple qubits. So it it kind of the complexity and the the, the richness and the ability to um, hold information grows as the uh, as the factorial. Uh, of the of, of the number of qubits, and so factorials go up really quickly. I mean, a factorial is you know, factorial five is one times two times three times four times five, which is one hundred and twenty, I think. And uh, yeah, and and the factorials grow super quickly. I mean, as, as as you can work it out if you if you start multiplying times six times seven times eight, then then they get very complicated. And that that's a kind of measure of just the complexity uh, with which you can represent information on a quantum computer. So that that's very generic about why quantum computers are um, are potentially really good, and the reason that they work well, um, uh, hopefully, will work well for things like nuclear physics, is that um, nucleons, protons, and neutrons they're also spin half fermions. They're two state systems. So there's so there are ways of mapping your nuclear problem very directly onto qubits. You can say you can identify each qubit in a quantum computer with one of your protons or neutrons in your nucleus. Um, there, are, there are then some clever mathematical tricks of how you turn um, your 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 interaction, which uh, you, you've got to start with some way of, of figuring out how protons and neutrons interact. You write down some mathematical equations, and then you translate them onto how qubits interact. So you have to do some 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 little transformations, but they're, they're relatively straightforward. And so then suddenly your your quantum computer becomes a, a simulator of a, of a nucleus rather than on a classical computer. You would just be using those bits, the zeros and ones, uh, to represent. Um, you, you'd use a lot of them to to represent um, regular numbers, and then you do a lot of number crunching, adding, subtracting, trying to solve equations in a rather mechanical way. It's a very different, very different kind of uh, way of doing it. So, Paul, can you give some examples of specific problems in nuclear physics um, that you hope to address using quantum computers? Yeah. So most of the things I'm interested in looking at fall under nuclear structure, which is a, a large area of nuclear physics. And that is to say um, the structure of a single nucleus. So you have one nucleus, it could be something very heavy, like uh, an isotope of lead with 82 protons and, a, and around 100 and 120, 126 neutrons. So the so nuclear structure says, um, what are the, the different properties of this single nucleus? What's its binding energy? Uh, what's its size, its shape? Uh, what happens when you give it excitation? So every nucleus uh, will have a, a an excitation spectrum, lots of different excited quantum levels it can exist in, and these could be interpreted as, say, uh, vibrational states or rotational states or something quite different. And it's a very rich set of structural properties. So the the way that one calculates those on a regular classical computer uh, involves uh, have, or you always have to make some kind of, um, in principle, rather radical approximations, and it's exactly because of the the complexity of the, the nuclear wave function grows in this uh, factorial type way that I, I mentioned uh, when talking about how quantum computers work. So if you, have a, if you have a system of a couple of hundred nucleons, then to even try to write down a representation of the, the wave function as exactly as you would like to be able to is not, not really very possible. And so we always make some, some pretty radical uh, simplifying approximations when calculating uh, heavy nuclei. Um, and those those can work reasonably well. I mean, it's not like uh, all the methods we have are, are not in some way successful, but we do hit this um, limit when it comes to 
uh, using these as, as exact as possible methods in, in heavy systems. And so the quantum computer, because of this way that its complexity scales just like that of, a, of any kind of many body quantum system, uh, means we can, we can attempt to make this direct simulation uh, that we, we just couldn't do on a classical computer. So we hope to be able to do those kind of calculations of, uh, of nuclear structure of heavy uh, elements. Um, that, that's the goal. Uh, at the moment, uh, we've done some simple calculations um, starting from the very lightest nuclei. So we always want to start in any new new field or, or some, you know, something, a new technique we're developing. Always try to see if we can uh, reproduce results at the very simplest level first to do as much checking, make sure everything's working well. So the only um, the systems we've been working with so far are, uh, are much lighter. So we've looked at the deuteron, which is uh, about, about as simple a nucleus as you can get. It's got one proton and one neutron. Well, I guess a single a single proton is a simpler nucleus, but there's not, nothing to work out from in terms of binding between protons and neutrons there. So and, and that worked that worked well. Uh, it's it's something we could. Um, I mean, we check. Uh, the, the, in fact, the calculations are simple enough that one can even do the check on pen and paper. So that's the level of complexity of the quantum computing calculations we've done so far. They really are uh, simple. Um, and we've started now looking at uh, a version, a simplified model of the nucleus, which has some analytic solutions when, when one starts making the number of nucleons very large uh, so that we can check whether when we start adding more and more nucleons, we can, we can benchmark whether our calculations are correct. It's something called the Lipkin-Meshkov-Glick model, which was originally developed in nuclear physics, and it's actually used as a kind of uh, test model um, by all sorts of uh, people, because you can you can imagine applying it to spin chains or uh, other systems in solid-state physics or atomic physics. And and under, I suppose understanding the structure of a nucleus is very important. Um, and I'm guessing there's lots of experimental data out there that you could sort of test your simulations against. But the, the, there are other applications, aren't there, in terms of things like um, astrophysics, where it could be very useful to do um, quantum calculations uh, on nuclear physics. Yeah, so, uh, so in terms of astrophysics there's a strong link between nuclear physics and astrophysics in the sense that all the nuclei um, that we have on earth were um, apart from a few of the lightest ones possibly created in the big bang everything else was created in some stellar process so a lot of what nuclear physicists do is to try to understand better what goes on inside stars uh, so either as um, regular slow burning stars um, creating some of the, the lighter and medium mass elements or in explosive um, uh, events like supernovae or uh, neutron star mergers where the heaviest elements get created. So there's a lot, a lot uh, strong um, overlap between um, almost everything in nuclear structure and nuclear reactions, which is the sort of other bit of nuclear physics that isn't structure um, to do with, with astrophysics. In particular, um, understanding some of these uh, excited states um, that, uh, that, that I'm attempting to calculate these nuclear structure calculations, they can be really influential in the the nuclear reactions that are ha happening in stars because wherever there's a an excited state in a, in a nucleus that can cause a, a resonance in a reaction and affect the reaction rate very strongly so people need to understand uh, if you want to understand the reaction rates in stars and how the history of the universe thus far leads to the kind of uh, abundance of different elements that we see around us uh, then you need to understand that um, that structure so that's i guess the strongest link i've been Speaking to some of my uh, colleagues in Surrey who are uh, astrophysicists, not particularly working on the, 
the nuclear side of astrophysics um, who, who are potentially interested in seeing what quantum computing could do for them. And, um, and I don't, to be honest, I don't know what the answer there is because in a lot of other astrophysics questions, you don't have this, uh, this neat um, convenient thing where uh, you're, not, you're no longer mapping some uh, combination of lots of spin-half fermions, in my case, the nucleons, onto qubits. So that's not, you know, stars, stars do not look like uh, uh, qubits very much, whereas protons and neutrons do look like qubits. So, but I think there's a lot of, I mean, ultimately, I think uh, quantum computing, uh, well, there'll be able to be many generic algorithms written on quantum computers that can solve just, you know, whatever problem you're interested in, in throwing at it. And quantum computers, I mean, we, we sort of talk about them in a, in a sort of offhand way, but the, the, the reality is that the, the quantum computers that exist today are, I don't know, is primitive the, the, the right word to use. That could be insulting to the people who have put an incredible amount of work into, into developing quantum computers, but they're, they, they're, they're not fully formed, let's say. So are, are, are the quantum systems that are available today powerful enough to, to perform practical nuclear physics calculations? Um, or will those applications have to wait until better systems come along? They're powerful enough to perform um, practical calculations, but not not calculations that are better than we can currently do on uh, you know, big number crunching regular classical computers. So at the moment, um, yeah, the, the current quantum computers are um, of a small number of qubits. Uh, they're up to the order of, of, of 100,000 qubit quantum computers supposed to be coming um, imminently. Um, so in principle, uh, you know, for, for the right kind of algorithm, you, if you want to calculate a heavy nucleus of, of say 300 nucleons, 300 protons and neutrons, you, you can hope to map that onto, uh, a quantum computer system with, of the order 300 ish, uh, qubits. Yeah. Typically for most algorithms, you need some extra qubits to do some of the, the computing, but, um, so, so in, in one sense, it, it, it sounds like it shouldn't be that far off. But the other issue with today's quantum computers, apart from the number of qubits, is that they're very noisy. Uh, making a quantum computer involves having to uh, manipulate some very delicate equipment and um, prepare the qubits, um, be they trapped ions or uh, electrons in, in quantum wells, in in just the right kind of state and keep them there without decohering, without interacting with the environment too much. So this is something uh, very, very fiddly and difficult to do, and uh, something you have to you have to make um, these very uh, fragile quantum states um, uh, and keep them keep them alive long enough. And that that can be quite hard. And they're, and they're very and they're quite noisy. You try you have to do these measurements I mentioned earlier. You you prepare the qubits and you you measure them a few thousand times. Um, but th these measurements uh, come with errors. So, I mean, I'm a, a theoretical physicist who spent my my career so far doing a lot of pen and paper calculations, doing a lot of calculations on classical computers, and now uh, using a quantum computer is almost like using a piece of experimental kit. You have uh, systematic errors, you have random errors associated with the, the measurements that are going on in these quantum computers. And these errors are actually significant enough um, that it really does limit the the complexity of algorithms that we can implement on today's quantum computers. So the kind of things I'm expecting to be able to do over the lifetime of this uh, grant that I've been awarded is not going to exceed what can be done on a, on a classical computer, but it's 
hopefully going to lay the, the groundwork for what will come uh, after. That, that must be a, a real challenge, Paul. I mean, you've, you, you've got your nuclear physics that, that needs to get done. And, uh, and, and you, I'm guessing that you're having to do a lot of work in understanding quantum computing, which, you know, itself is a highly specialized field. Is it, um, what, what are some of the challenges that you face as a nuclear physicist in um, uh, sort of getting into quantum computing, if I can say it that way? Yes, that is um, quite a challenge. It's difficult to attempt to be in two communities at once. Uh, when I um, when I was just doing nuclear physics, then I could, um, for example, there's a uh, an online repository of, of research called Archive A R X I V, which is um, you know it's well known place where a vast number of um, of research publications get put as preprints, uh, roughly at the same time they're sent off to. To journals for peer review and there one can get a good idea of what's going on in your field so every morning i get a, an automatic email that i'd set up from from the archive servers to tell me all the new papers in the nuclear theory section and every day there would be something like uh, somewhere between one and ten single digits usually of new papers appearing uh, so we're in the um in the area of archive for quantum computing which is the quantum the quantum physics general area um, then there can be, uh, you know, there's, there's at least 10 times as many papers every day. So suddenly having to try to keep up with, um, with, with, with an order of magnitude more uh, in a field that's an order of magnitude bigger than the one I've, I've been traditionally working in. So I obviously can't read every paper that appears and, and uh, I'm just, yeah, I have to do my best to keep up. And uh, it can also be quite hard to, you know, halfway through my career uh, to try to move into a new area and, um the, good, the, the fortunate thing, I suppose, about that is quantum computing. It's not a brand new area, but uh, it's relatively that the community uh, who are trying to apply nuclear physics on quantum computers, quantum computers is relatively small. So uh, I'm at least joining, uh, joining this overlapping community at, at the beginning of its, uh, of its existence. So uh, that makes things a bit easier for me. It's in fact in uh, quantum chemistry has been the, they've been leading leading the use of quantum computers, people trying to work out states of, of, of chemicals, uh, you know, um, things like um, vibrational and rotational states of, of molecules or, or their ground state orientations and shapes and so on. And, and how does that work, you know, with your, with your colleagues in uh, Surrey and your, and your research group? Do, are, you, are you bringing in people with, uh, who already have an expertise in quantum computing? I don't know, let's say somebody who did a PhD in quantum computing, and now maybe you're working with them as a postdoc to, um, you know, to try to, 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 to bring the fields of nuclear physics and quantum computing together. Is that, is that something that... Uh, that, that, that you're exploring or is, or do, do, I suppose, is your research group still, you still see yourselves as nuclear physicists? Yeah, that's a good, good question. So um, I'm, I think I still see myself as a nuclear physicist. I'm not sure whether I'll, uh, well, I suppose I see myself as a, co a combination that I do both, both nuclear physics and quantum computing at the moment. Uh, I don't know whether, I, you know, how tenable it will be to, to carry on seeing myself as both or whether I need to pick, pick one camp or the other. Uh, but with the uh, with this grant that you mentioned at the beginning, that involves uh, me bringing in a, a postdoc to work with me uh, in my group, and um, the, uh, yeah, uh, that's in the we're in the process of making that appointment. So whether it will be someone that has a background from quantum computing or uh, from more from nuclear physics, uh, um, not haven't, haven't quite worked that out yet. 
but um, you know it's unlikely to be someone with a background in both because that, you know, that there aren't those people out there. Um, but that's okay. And it's also an area I must say I found uh, since working more in quantum computing, it's definitely an area that PhD students are a lot more interested in working in than than my tra my traditional area of nuclear physics, at least. So that's that's great. It means I've been able to build up a a group of uh, PhD students uh, that, are, that are excited about working in this area. Well, thanks, Paul. It's been, it's been fantastic hearing about your research and your plans uh, for the future. Um, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. That was the University of Surrey nuclear physicist, Paul Stevenson. Now, I'm joined by my Physics World colleague, Mateen Durrani, who's just returned from a meeting in Cambridge. Hi, Mateen. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. So, this meeting you went to was uh, held to celebrate the career of your PhD supervisor at Cambridge, Athene Donald, who's retiring. C can you tell us a bit about Athene? Yeah, I can. I mean, I, as you said, I did my PhD with Athene uh, many moons ago. I don't want to admit how long ago it was, but she stands out for being um, the first female physics professor at the Cavendish Laboratory, which is the physics department at the University of Cambridge. Um, so that's one uh, great thing that she achieved. She's also uh, a great interdisciplinary scientist. She worked uh, initially in the field of metal physics, and then she branched out into polymer physics and then moved into studying biological polymers, uh, biomedical materials, uh, things like starch, food products. And so her career took her in all sorts of different directions and very varied. I, I often heard the word a sort of random walk in science being used, but, you know, very often in science, you don't quite know where your career will take you. And I think she had many adventures that uh, crossed different boundaries. Um, and the reason for the conference, as you said, she's just retired, um, but she's still master of Churchill College, and she's the first female master of that college at the University of Cambridge. And, and she's also been a, 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 a supporter of increasing diversity in physics. Is that right? Yeah, she's done a lot. I mean, I don't think it's something that she wanted particularly to be a spokesperson for when she started out, but as she rose through the ranks, she realized, you know, she had the power to change the way uh, physics is taught and studied and the people who get into the subject. And yeah, she's been very much a, a spokesperson for that and a trailblazer, you know, and often she was, as I said, she was the first female physics professor and was kind of making up the rules for how female physicists at the Cavendish should um, have their careers nurtured and helped. So yeah, she's done she's done an awful lot. And I have to say the group that she worked in, that I joined, was had a very, very good uh, gender balance, even back then. Um, and I think very much, you know, she stood out as a yeah, trailblazer, I'd, I'd call her, you know, and, and you know, a lot of people really admired and stood up and respected her work. And uh, that was the theme through the conference. You mentioned, Mateen, that interdisciplinary research was, was her forte. And at the meeting, you took part, part in a discussion about interdisciplinary work. Can you give us a feel for, um, for that discussion? What points were made by you and other speakers? Yeah, the two of the speakers, they were very interesting. One was, a, a, well, he was a physicist at the University of York called Mark Leake. And the other person was... Um, uh, Veronica Strang, who's an anthropologist of all things at Durham University, so she's very good at 
looking at, from the outside in at communities and how they and how they operate. Um, um, often it's very much the, all the rage. It's sort of trendy to do interdisciplinary, but it's quite hard to do it well. Um, you know, there's barriers of communication. There's barriers of not having enough experience. There's barriers of finding places to publish your work. Um, there's often quite a lot of snobbery in physics. You know, people look down on this kind of stuff as not really physics and can be quite dismissive. Um, and that kind of drew on to another thread in the conference, which was the whole idea of imposter syndrome, the fact that you often feel that you're not worthy of being a scientist, that somehow you, you, are, you are in theory, even though you're not. And, and that can very much be a, a more prevalent feeling if you are at, at a sort of interdisciplinary area where there are sort of you are at the frontier there are fewer established things going on and it's harder to sort of make a concrete mark that's accepted by the communities that you're in so those were some of the themes um but i mean interdisciplinary work is fun and it's exciting a lot of people really enjoy it so i don't want to be too damn beat but yeah those were those were some of the issues that were raised and there was a really good hour and a half long debate about it with the audience so uh yeah very interesting so I, I know, you know, the feeling a few years ago, at least, was that, you know, interdisciplinary work was it, it was the darling of, of, of research funding organizations. And therefore, universities were very keen on on having their researchers participate in it. Is it, is it still that way? Is it, is it still seen as, uh, as, 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 you know, the new greatest thing or uh, have people, um, if, do people have a more realistic view of it now? I think it varies very much from country to country and from research body to research body. I think in the UK with some of the research councils, the people who like interdisciplinary work are often fighting to have that um, at the forefront of funding. Because I think the problem for people working in those areas, if your work falls between two research pots, it's hard to know which one to go to. And if you go to pot X, they don't like it. If you go to pot Y, they don't like it either. So you need a sort of special initiatives to encourage that sort of work. And that can very much, whether that money is available, depends on having advocates who can persuade policymakers and funders to support that kind of work. So I don't think it's that easy. Um, and of course, the other thing is, you know, finding places to publish your work and having it accepted and having it seen by people um, that that can be quite difficult, but I think there are more research journals that have an interdisciplinary focus. So I think it is hard. Um, it's tough. There are no easy answers. Um, but certainly the people who are involved in the work, as I said, you know that they find you know it fascinating and it's exciting and it's perhaps um, an area where because it's new, you can make your mark more quickly. The challenge is to have that work accepted is is not always easy. Okay. And, and Mateen, I understand that you're at this moment, you're writing a blog post about um, your experiences uh, in Cambridge, and that's going to be published on the Physics World website. So if you're interested in uh, the career of Athene Donald or um, inter interdisciplinary uh, research or both, um, keep an eye on the Physics World website for Mateen's blog. Thanks, Mateen, for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Hamish. See you later. Physics lies at the heart of much of what we know about global warming, and physicists are playing important roles in developing technologies that can reduce our reliance on burning fossil fuels. But physicists are also contributing to climate change, both personally and professionally. 
This week on the Physics World website, we have two articles that look at those professional carbon footprints. In one article, the science writer Michael Allen reports on a study of the potential carbon emissions of several proposed successors to the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. Included in the study are three linear colliders, the International Linear Collider in Japan, the Cool Copper Collider in the U.S., and the Compact Linear Collider at CERN. The researchers also looked at two proposed circular colliders, the Future Circular Collider, which is also at CERN, and the China Electron-Positron Collider. The study was done by CERN's Patrick Jano and Alain Blondel, who ranked the colliders both in terms of energy consumption per Higgs boson produced and greenhouse gas emissions per Higgs boson produced. The two circular colliders came out on top on both measures, with the future circular collider edging out the China Electron-Positron Collider in both cases. In terms of greenhouse gas emissions, the CERN Collider did particularly well because it would be powered by the French electricity grid, which relies heavily on nuclear power. In contrast, the International Linear Collider is expected to have 50 times the greenhouse gas emissions per Higgs boson than the future Circular Collider. You can read more about the study on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, CERN's proposed 100-kilometer circumference Higgs factory has lower environmental impact than competing designs. Elsewhere on the website, the freelance science journalist Laura Hiscott looks at a new open-source tool that helps scientists understand and reduce the carbon footprints of their labs. Created by Tamara ben Airy at the University of Paris and colleagues in France, the tool reveals that heating, travel, and commuting are the main factors that contribute to a lab's carbon footprint, rather than the scientific equipment used in it. This conclusion was based on data input by 500 or so research groups that have used the tool so far. Laura's article is headlined, Open Source Tool Allows Researchers to Calculate Their Lab's Carbon Footprint. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Paul Stevenson and Mateen Durrani for joining me today. And a special thank you to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester looks at the uncertainty surrounding the UK's status in the Horizon Europe Research Funding Scheme and how it's affecting physicists working in the UK. The podcast will be available on Friday, the 16th of September on the Physics World website or at your favourite podcast provider. Physics World.